1: Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, the host of this channel, and I'm so thrilled to be in conversation with Professor Jini Lokanita, author of The Truth Machines, Policing, Violence, and Scientific Interrogations in India, which was published by University of Michigan Press earlier this year. Congratulations, Jini, on this really rigorous and interesting book. It is so good to have a chance to chat with you about it.
0: Thanks so much, Sneha, for doing this interview and for engaging with the book.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. The pleasure is all mine. Um, I thought we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you became a political scientist.
0: That's actually a really interesting and difficult question for me. <laughs> so, uh, so I um, you know, grew up in India and went to Delhi University, did my bachelor's, master's and MPhil in political science at First Kirori Mal College and at Delhi University. And, um, and I really love political science, partly because of uh, the relationship that it had with sort of, um, you know, diverse methodologies, as well as more substantive questions of political theory, but also um, sort of thinking about what was happening in terms of social movements and people's movements. Um, so when I came to the U.S. to do my Ph.D., I was told that political science is highly quantitative and um, and so, um, you know, asking me to sort of think about other disciplines like sociology and anthropology. Um, and uh, yet I stuck to political science and, um, you know, often then um, think about my ambivalent relationship with political science. Um, and uh, what I mean by that is, you know, um, I don't, my work doesn't necessarily fit in any one um, particular subfield, right? But um, maybe closest to political theory and what um, attracts me to political science is the fact that we are asking these bigger questions about state policing, uh, justice, equality, um, and um, you know, m- me getting uh, attracted to sort of um looking at different methodologies, which are much more interpretive and qualitative. Um, So I think uh, political science has now become much more open in the US uh, to different kinds of methodologies and questions. And that's uh, the tradition I place myself in.
1: Mm -hmm. That's excellent. And, you know, I also empathize with feeling a lack of uh, orientation towards any particular subfield because even in my own discipline that's a sociology I'm often like I don't know what subfield I belong to so thank you for that clearly like you can I mean I feel much better that I have a place in academia after listening to your uh, story um but anyway before we dive into the book's arguments I am curious to know from you how this particular book was conceived or how this project sort of unfolded over the years
0: yeah I mean um I think um you know, my my general focus of my work has been on trying to understand the relationship between law and violence and state in liberal democracies. Um, and so my in my first uh, book, um, Transnational Torture, I looked at sort of the jurisprudence of interrogations in both US and India as two examples of liberal democracies. And, um, and in that particular context, um, I found that even though torture was sort of assumed to be absent in a liberal democracy, yet these practices sort of always continued. And uh, part of what um, I uh, looked at was to show how law itself was able to accommodate excess violence. Uh, which is the uh, concept that I talk about in my first book. Um, and uh, that sort of made me think much more about what is really the apparatus through which state manages its own violence. And, um, and uh, you know, it was sort of a chance um, um, comment by a friend who told me that uh, a DGP that she was in touch with said that, oh, analysis and these methods only came into being uh, because they were meant to replace physical torture. And this was something that I'd seen in the jurisprudence also, that, you know, torture can only be replaced by scientific methods of investigation. So I decided to uh, focus on that, um, uh, but in a different way where interviews uh, were um, the way through which I did this particular project, as opposed to looking at, Documents and popular representations and cases that I did in my first book. So in this one, I went to five uh, cities. Um, you know, Bangalore, um, Ahmedabad, uh, uh, Mumbai, uh, Delhi, uh, and Hyderabad, um, and interviewed psychologists, um, forensic psychologists in particular, police, lawyers, and activists um and and i think uh, the reason why i thought it was really important to do uh, this kind of work was to think about state and policing differently rather than thinking about state as a very monolithic uh, entity um and um, basically you know if you think about um uh, the theories of state that are most known in the context of political science uh, but also more broadly uh, then either there's sort of this idea of, um, you know, a Weberian conception of the state, uh, which sort of talks about the monopoly over legitimate violence, or sort of this Agambenian, um, you know, conception of the state, which is sort of talking about a state as a much more, um, you know, um, exceptional uh, sovereign uh, that is able to control bare life. And I was very interested in sort of, um understanding violence as it was experienced by those who um um you know who engage with the everyday state actors, and that really brought me uh to truth machines um you know the the book that I recently wrote
1: mm-hmm. yeah so uh, going off of that. In Truth Machines, you think through state power and legal violence in India by analyzing the rather fraught deployment of three techniques, that is lie detectors, brain scans, and narco analysis, um, and how they're used in investigations. Could you tell us a little bit about when these techniques began to get used in India and the general debates around uh, their use that have arisen since?
0: Yeah, so uh, what I do in Truth Machines is to talk about three um, forensic psychology-based techniques, uh, which is, as you said, uh, polygraphs or lie detectors, uh, brain scans, and narcoanalysis. And let me just very briefly introduce those techniques and then, um, you know, talk about how they originated and became important in the Indian context. Um, So polygraphs are, of course, um, you know, most well-known in terms of, Uh, how bodily indicators are supposed to reflect whether you are, um, you know, telling um, um, a lie or truth. Um, And, um, you know, brain scans are much more in the context of um, trying to read, um, you know, experiential activity in the brain. So the idea is that uh, you have um, electroencephalogram which can actually determine whether you had experience of committing that crime. And that's something that is claimed when you're talking about methods like brain fingerprinting or uh, brain electrical oscillation signature test, which is the Indian version of uh, brain scanning. And finally, narcoanalysis, which is um, uh, about the use of drugs, uh, particularly sodium pentothal, uh, which is uh, used um, in order to, you know, uh, inject it into somebody so that they can be asked questions um, and um, ostensibly um, sort of uh, lead to, um, you know, uh, them lead to the person telling the truth and not being able to uh, tell a lie. So these are the three techniques that um, I term truth machines because of the claim made by forensic psychologists that these actually allow for um, the police and the forensic psychologists to get truth in the context of a crime. Um, And um, these techniques started getting used in India uh, at different phases. So polygraphs we've seen uh, were there uh, from the 70s onwards. But really, uh, what I trace in the book is that it's uh, in the um, late 80s and 90s in particular um, that uh, you see the emergence of these techniques uh, all together in a big way. Um, And I trace that also to the fact that basically uh, post um, or 90s is also the time that you see a consolidation of the human rights movements in India, right? Mm-hmm. So post-emergency, you see the emergence of um, sort of human rights groups, um, you know, uh, sort of the civil liberty and democratic rights groups, as well as uh, the more quasi-state ones, right? The National Human Rights Commission, mm-hmm. and um, and they all start focusing on human rights violations, and particularly the question of custodial deaths and custodial torture. Uh, Which, um, you know, uh, from the time uh, that we have the data um, from the 1990s to now, basically uh, there are high rates, high incidences of uh, both custodial torture, but also custodial deaths, uh, Mm. where basically um, you see both deaths in police custody as well as judicial custody. So part of what I trace in the book is to recognize that these uh, techniques become extremely important uh, during um, these um, the 1990s, but mid 2000s suddenly any major case you see, right? Whether it's the Arushi murder case, Arushi Hemraj murder case, or Uh poaching cases, or um, you know sort of the anti-terror cases, you find that um, you know there's this articulation of the need to use a combination of these truth machines, as if they are the ones that are going to really transform the Indian criminal justice system. And Mm -hmm. that's um, the story that, um, you know, I try to trace in the context of these particular techniques.
1: Yeah, thank you. That was really helpful, I think, especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet. That was a really helpful context and, um, and uh, yeah, argument. Uh, but in the book, you also argue uh, theoretically that paying attention to the everyday functioning of the police and this reliance on non-state actors like forensic psychologists, uh, you tell us that it uh, tells us something important about the relationship of the police to violence. Uh, thinking through these truth machines, your content can provide insight into what you call the workings of a contingent state. So I was wondering if you could speak about why thinking about contingency matters to the study of state power in general, but post-coronial policing in particular, and I know you brought up Weber and Agambin, but uh, if you could say a little more about um, how you were thinking about the state uh, in that sense, that would be great.
0: So I think one of the major points that I'm trying to make um, in the book is uh, about methodology. Um, And and here, of course, you know, I uh, draw a a lot from uh, sort of what has been uh, the work done in anthropology, in particular, uh, sort of everyday, um, uh, you know, everyday practices of the state telling us something about both bureaucratic practices but also um I want uh, wanted to think about it in the context of um police and violence, right? Partly mm-hmm. because when we think about the police, police are really the everyday um, you know, actors, everyday state actors who um, you know, are responsible for managing um the state interaction with the populations. So in that sense, I find it very, very intriguing that a number of scholars of the state, which of course is, um, you know, a very, very commonly uh, talked about institution um, in the context of political science, um, but never really looked at uh, the question of uh, uh, police, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, Mm -hmm. police uh, was always um, sort of thought of as something which is, Uh, either inherently violent or Mm -hmm. something uh, which is, uh, you know, seen as so bureaucratic that you basically do not uh, necessarily need to look at the everyday practices. Um, So so I do think that that sort of brought me to the question of uh, methodology about uh, studying both the state and police as a site of state power. And here I just want to briefly refer to, you know, one of the interviews that, uh, for me, was very, very um, interesting, which was uh, with this um, a particular uh, police officer in Bangalore uh, who was telling me how, uh, you know, he sort of moved um, into being much more of a, critique, a critic of the police uh, mm-hmm. as a student leader to becoming um, a police officer. And he tells uh, the story of how, he was involved in a, a, a murder case uh, of um, a couple, and um, uh, one of them, um, who um, the uh, one person dies, and the other person is this woman who survives, um, and um, you know is uh, tells him about this particular uh, auto driver who attacked her, and in that particular context, um, you know. Um, he's told that he can't use third degree or physical torture. Third degree is often a term that um, the police would use um, to sort of uh, not want to talk about torture, right? So they would say third degree. Um, and um, in that particular context, I sort of thought that he's now going to tell me uh, something about narcoanalysis because this is the context in which I had um, sort of asked uh about his experience, but he went on and told me that, you know, I just went ahead and mixed, um, you know, two kinds of alcohol and just gave him and um, he uh, blurted out everything. Um, And for me, it was a very striking moment because, um, you know, it told us something about how we think about police practices and what this particular police was um, police action or police articulation was telling us. Um, and what I mean by that is when you look at the um, scholars, particularly uh, those who have looked uh, at mechanisms of torture um, um, and um, you know state executions more closely, um, and here uh, I think a lot of this work has been done um, in the context of, let's say, the U.S., where a number of scholars like Austin Sarat and others have pointed to the way in which the mechanisms of execution change, right? And they change in such a way that they became become more humane over time. Um, so, you know, you think about hanging or electric chair to lethal injection. Um, so they appear humane. for For now, I'm not talking about whether they Still, are painful or not, right? But they appear more humane than the previous ones. Uh, Similarly, you know, when you think about, um, you know, Darius Rejali and others sort of talking about uh, scarring and non-scarring forms of torture, there is uh, sort of this idea that state is much more intentional about uh, the way in which we think about the changes in the methods of violence, right? And And uh, what was interesting in the narrative that I just talked about, um, this police officer, is that it is actually much more arbitrary. It is much more um, sort of contingent in the way that, um, you know, the police sort of uh, come up with their own methods of how to, um, you know, extract information, you know. Um, I'll just mention one other um, element in this particular context where basically the um, the uh, police another police officer when I asked uh, him about narco, said, "Do you mean unofficial narco or official narco? Um, and basically, you find that um, they they have methods of either using a local doctor coming in, you know, giving um some kind of medicines. Or basically a range of different things, which um, you know, which is from alcohol to um, uh, marijuana to sometimes using, um, you know, favorite rice dishes like biryani, and all these become sort of a part of this uh, narrative, which at one time tells us that it's not in uh, there's no intentional state strategy always that we can think about, but also. Um, That uh, there's sort of uh, this arbitrariness to the kinds of methods that the police end up using, which cannot be captured by our categories without looking at the everyday practices. So I think that, uh, for me, um, is um, really important for us to understand why the everyday practices of the police and state uh, need to be both studied but are also not captured in the sort of monolithic conceptualizations uh, that uh, sometimes scholars use of the state and police.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I also, you know, found it very compelling when you argued that the truth machines fit India's developmentalist approach to modernization based on scientific expertise, um, and I found even more interesting how you then linked this discussion between a developmentalist approach and truth machines uh, to the twinned characterization of the Indian police as both pastoral and repressive at once. Could you perhaps uh, tease out this link and speak a little bit about how the pastoral and repressive functions of policing coexist? Thanks.
0: Um, I think what I found very interesting is that You know, when I first started this uh, particular project uh, on state and policing, right, and trying to think about the link between law, science, and policing, um, you know, to understand the relationship between uh, state power and legal violence, I found that a lot of the times uh, people uh, sort of thought of why look at such marginal methods that are happening in a few forensic science labs. Um, And for me, it was very important to tease out how basically um, these forensic techniques actually tell you a much larger story about what uh, what you uh, just mentioned, which is sort of this developmentalist approach to modernization based on scientific expertise, right? Um, And you see that in a range of different kinds of studies, right? So Timothy Michel sort of talks about it in the context of Egypt, or Shirupa Roy talks about you know, how science and development um, uh, become so important in sort of the Nehruvian model. Um, But what is fascinating for me is that, um, you know, a similar kind of an attention was not uh, paid to the way in which police tried to think about its modernization, um, you know, regime, right? Uh, And so part of what I end up doing is to, Um, sort of think about the emergence of these forensic techniques um, in discussions of modernization of the police as technical solutions uh, to policing and violence, right? So basically, there's a recognition that police have to play a different role in a post-colonial society, and um, the way that that leads to uh, the emergence of these particular forensic techniques is a fascinating story for me. Um, What that does is to sort of move away from um, uh, another kind of an understanding of the police, which was much more sort of ideological. Right. Um, And what I mean, there is, uh, you know, either an understanding that uh, police is just um, um, sort of an instrument of, um, you know, uh, the dominant sections of society. Right. Coming much more. Uh, from a kind of a Marxist perspective, but also, you know, um, thinking about uh, the police playing an ideological role uh, differently in terms of trying to promote a concept of justice or public order, um, and uh, which a number of um, recent scholars have sort of pointed to, Um, but, um, you know, and in addition, uh, there's also this argument about police just following a colonial continuity, right? Um, so part of what I wanted to do by, um, you know, focusing on the internal logic of the police uh, was to think about the tensions that you see the police themselves acknowledge, Right. Um, And, you know, I do that in two ways in the book. One is sort of looking at uh, the reform um, kind of uh, committees, right, from um, the Gore Committee to a National Police Commission to Malimat. And um, and also recognize that, um, you know, at each moment, the police are sort of thinking about their own relationship to violence. Right. Internally. Um, and, um, and also that, um, you know, what was fascinating for me was that the police gave um, their own pragmatic reasons for why uh, torture was being used. So, you know, for instance, they talk about the distrust, right, that they experience because they cannot actually um, record confessions unlike other uh, police in other jurisdictions, right, or other countries. or. Uh, the fact that um, you know uh, there are incentives within the law through exceptions in the law um, that uh, basically um, ask them to actually show evidence or materials that have been you uh, got that have been discovered through the use of torture or confessions. Uh, so you cannot use the confessions under the law, right? But you can can actually use some of the materials or recover, recovered evidence, um, you know, as an exception within the law, right? So these are all sort of what I call the pragmatic logic of third degree torture. which is not to say um, that, um, you know, that we basically um, uh, recognize um, uh, the, the need to change all of these, but uh, at the same time, I think it's important for us to both Uh, recognize uh, these structural um, or institutional uh, constraints and contingencies um, in the way the police themselves articulate uh, the need for using third-degree torture. Um, And finally, um, and this um, is something that uh, you referred to, which is um, the relationship between um, sort of um, how do we think about the uh, the this kind of an external understanding of the police, which is much more ideological, and a kind of an internal logic of the kind of conversations that are happening within the police, uh, for me, led me to sort of think about the pastoral and the repressive um, conceptions of the police. And here, of course, you know, I'm referring to Foucauldian concepts and those used by new police science scholars Uh, such as Mark Dubber and others, uh, who are sort of asking us to look at the tensions within the role of the police itself. And um, the way in which I sort of think about it, um, you know, um, in in the particular context of police relationship um, to violence is to think about how, um, you know, even in the uh, context of custody, Right where uh, basically we know very little often about what goes on in custody, uh, the police actually um, you know uh, feel the pressure of mediating their forms of violence, um, and um, and that is sort of why I say that um, the pastoral um, doesn't replace the repressive, but it mediates uh, the repressive. Uh, in other words, they are much more fearful of um, a custodial death or a custodial injury. As we know that those are the kinds of cases, right, when there are, um, you know, very um, uh, sort of bloody injuries or deaths in custody, that it becomes apparent in the public context. So um, so in, in that context, I'm, uh, you know, I'm suggesting that we have to look at the pastoral and the repressive, um, you know, whether we can think about that uh, more generally about the police as an institution is something that requires much more work. Uh, I would say that I I sort of am thinking about, um, you know, a very specific site, right, which is about the police relationship to violence where uh, they uh, do, um, you know, they are assumed to have, a sort of a monopoly over violence, but even there, partly due to the um, impact of uh, the kind of pressures that we see from the human rights movements and um, um, the critiques from them has led to this kind of a pastoral and the repressive uh, coexisting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really appreciated that kind of fine-grained acknowledgement of how the police also think of themselves and how that that in a way gives rise to these mediations between the pastoral and repressive. It certainly resonated with me as someone who also uh, does ethnographic work amongst law enforcement officers, so I uh, really appreciated that. Um, but in chapter three, you sort of go on a slightly different tack, I mean a related tack of course, and you delve into the debates and discussions around the validity of truth-telling techniques And you argue that the legitimacy of these techniques is a cultural question more than a scientific or legal one. Um, I invite you to perhaps take one of the techniques as an example and tell us a little bit about how this cultural validation works.
0: Sure. Uh, So as I said, I talk about the three techniques. um, And uh, in each of these, what is very important to recognize is that, um, you know, the history, uh, whether it's in the U.S. or in India, Um, and I talk about the sort of comparative uh, stories of origins and sustainance of uh, these truth machines in U.S. and India, one finds that there is no scientific reliability or validity, right? You find that um, every time um, there is excitement about these techniques um, and uh, as it sort of, um, you know, um, uh, proceeds and becomes popular, Um, what sustains it is not uh, uh, that the scientific community thinks that this is one of the best ways of getting information or truth, but rather the fact that there is a popular kind of uh, conception uh, that, um, you know, sustains it. Um, And um, I will uh, just mention here, uh, for instance, um, you know, Jeffrey Bunn, who talks about spectacular science, right? Right. uh, talks about how the lie detectors in the US were only sustained because of pulp fiction right or wonder woman and the lasso right are examples in popular culture that sustain it and yet the impact of it is such that despite legal um you know a rejection or um scientific um, rejection, you find that polygraph still becomes, you know, one of the key moments in the Kavanaugh hearings, just to give you, um, you know, uh, that example, um, because there is a popular conception that somewhere uh, polygraphs are more um, sort of um, 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 have, have more acceptance, right? Um, um, and, and the main reason I trace this history is what happens often is that um, you know because we think about um, forensic techniques or um, you know any uh, policing practices um, are um, are dependent on often the legal interventions, right? Um, that once courts say that oh these are not uh, admissible, right? The results of these are not admissible, which is sort of the con you know, even in the Indian context, uh, they're not admissible, Um, the debate sort of uh, stops there, right? And what I find limiting in this kind of a perspective is that it does not acknowledge the the role that these scientific techniques or these forensic techniques play in a popular or cultural production of truth. And here's a, a quick example Um, you know, um, I talk in the book about the Arushi case, which was, of course, about a young girl who uh, was uh, found murdered. And then uh, the um, uh, domestic help, Hemraj, he was found murdered as well. And um, basically, the parents were convicted for those two uh, murders. Um, And um, and basically, there were a number of issues with this very complicated legal case and tells us a lot about, you know, how criminal investigations are done. But the part that was fascinating for me and sort of makes this point about culture production is that the, there was a very um, sort of uh, visible campaign to challenge the conviction of the parents. And there were two movies made, you know, um, um Talwar and Rahesya, a book written by Sen and uh, basically a podcast, uh, Trial by Error. And for me, each of them were very interesting about how they pushed the results of narco analysis of um, the Hemraj's friends, right? Some aides who were also um, sort of um, seen in the context of that case. And um, and once the acquittal uh, of the parents happened, um, you know, the forensic psychologist gave statements saying that, look, we always told you that narcoanalysis analysis uh, was um, was important in the case, even though legally it was not admissible. So so this is a really good example for us to think about how the life of these techniques uh, stay beyond the law. And um, that's one of the reasons that in the Hatra's case, uh, where um, Dalit woman was um, recently um, gang-raped and murdered, right, um, you find that the state government proclaimed that narcoanalysis will be done. Um, and uh, that is a constant reminder of um, uh, what is the cultural role of these techniques as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, It it really gives one a lot to think about, especially uh, in light of the Hathras case, as you mentioned. Um, So in chapter four, you explore what you call the state forensic architecture and the fashioning of forensic psychologists as experts. You then show the kinds of frictions that arise in terms of forensic psychologists working with the Indian police, um, who they are technically under police charge. Specifically, you reveal that while forensic psychologists try to distance their own work from police work, the net results seem to reinforce the structure of Indian policing and its violent and confessional mode. I was hoping you could share with our listeners a glimpse of how this mechanism of reproduction of policing structure really works.
0: As I would mentioned, um, you know, the I talk about uh, the emergence of these techniques um, around uh, first in the 70s, but really in the 90s, um, And um, what you actually end up seeing is that even though there were particular very, very arbitrary contingent reasons why these practices came into being, right, there were ambitious forensic psychologists who thought these might work, others who wanted to sort of gain popularity and um, ended up uh, sort of making claims that they are infallible and, you know, narco videos were leaked to the media, there was a particular moment in the um, early 2000s that you actually see the Ministry of Human um, um, uh, Resources, right, Uh, or Home Affairs, uh, Ministry of Home Affairs, um, in the context of India, um, sort of proclaim that uh, these techniques or expansion of these forensic techniques as um, the, uh, the, the priority of policing right? uh, Using science. And that's something I um, term as sort of the state forensic architecture. Um, And one of the reasons why, um, you know, that's so important is that it gave a lot of importance to the role of forensic psychologists. Um, And uh, the way that the forensic psychologists um, that I interviewed talked about, basically, they wanted to uh, constantly distance themselves from the police right Facially, professionally and therapeutically so uh so they really believe that they were able to use empathy patience um you know not um sort of uh create trauma for uh, these um um people who are um accused of um crimes and help them come to terms with it Right, Um, and um, you know, and because the uh, the use of these techniques, uh, ostensibly according to the forensic psychologists, could only work if a person was not physically or mentally traumatized. Then, basically, they could claim that uh, by definition, they were trying to replace physical torture. So, so in some ways, what I found fascinating. Was that these forensic psychologists who are in a forensic science lab, which otherwise had you know deals with um, you know uh, different kinds of samples, right? As a serologist or something else, or a DNA expert, uh, but they said they were the only ones who sort of um, had live suspects, right? Um, so they constantly sort of uh, played this role where they uh, almost showed themselves. Uh, as what I call uh, a cyborg, right? Sort of this human and machine morphing from one to the other, at times talking about science and at uh, other times talking about art, uh, but the art coming from their psychological training, psychology-based training. Um, so so I did think that um, it, it was an attempt uh, to recognize some kind of a gesturing of A non-state actor or a semi-state actor, as I call them, um, basically who are different from the police. But the issue, of course, is that um, what they ended up doing was recreating another site for confessions, right? So basically what they would do is, and they say that in their interviews, in the articles, um, uh, that basically it's it's meant to force them um to confess to get information um in fact one of the um you know labs i went to um the director said to me um you know those who we who we cannot physically torture we just bring them to the labs uh, to basically get uh, these confessions or information um so i do think that given the kind of emphasis on uh, forcing somebody to betray their, um, you know, betray oneself and use of science and experts, uh, basically strengthen both the cultural production argument that I talked about earlier, a modernizing developmentalist mode of expert and science, but also you know, um, failed to actually, um, you know, create another site which was free of coercion or violence.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that, I mean, that point came through really beautifully, if I may say so, in the chapter, and I thank you for uh, summarizing that so well uh, in the for the podcast. Um, yeah. I was very intrigued by chapter five, where you suggest that the inclusion of scientific investigative techniques represent what you call uh, the liberal state's desire to modernize along with the reluctance to challenge the conditions for the persistence of torture. And you term this dynamic peculiarly post-colonial. Could you tell us a little bit about why this dynamic is peculiarly post-colonial?
0: So uh, what I found um, in terms of the role of the courts um, was uh, that, um, you know, you basically have the high courts, which were asked to come in uh, to mediate uh, what the state officials and the police were saying on one hand, right, that basically these are, um, you know, just new forms of uh, torture uh, and what, uh, uh, sorry, I should rephrase that. Um, They were replacing physical torture is what the police and the state officials were saying, And the critics, um, who were primarily at that time civil liberty scholars and activists, they sort of pointed to the fact that these are just new forms of physical or psychological torture, right? Um, And so the um, state high courts, um, and there were a number of cases that came up uh, challenging the the use of these uh, forensic techniques. And for me, what was very interesting is the fact that the state high courts, basically, uh, for the most part, embraced these techniques wholeheartedly. Right? They said these are just extensions of investigation. They said they they are safe because you have medical experts there, uh, who will ensure, basically, um, you know that uh, physical third degree is here replaced by uh, reliable, um, you know, methods. Um, And um, so, and even when the Supreme Court um, came in to uh, intervene in this particular case, it ended up focusing on the involuntariness of these techniques, saying that you cannot use them uh, or force people to be subjected to these techniques. Um, And yet did not sort of recognize um, that uh, basically the uh, techniques themselves were coercive and therefore should not be used because um, they they take away any idea of voluntariness, right? Uh, by the very use of these techniques, when you inject a um, drug into somebody, um, you know there's very little uh, scope for voluntariness, um, and uh, and they did not also challenge. Uh, the role of the doctors or the medical professionals or forensic psychologists uh, in this um, uh, particular um, role um, and, um, and failed to recognize um, that uh, they were actually not making the connection between what was happening in the context of these truth machines to conditions of torture, right? which they had previously talked about right so you have a hu- huge jurisprudence which actually recognizes that uh, the you know indian state has constantly failed to check police torture and yet the uh, very conditions that allow for um, you know these practices to continue right are not challenged by the supreme court um, by thinking of this These particular truth machines in a very narrow way of inadmissibility and involuntariness. Now, why do I call it a peculiarly post colonial um, uh, context? Is because I think um, time and time again, right, you see a very stark kind of uh, tension uh, between what happens in the legal rhetoric and what. Actually, is allowed to exist in terms of both reality, but the legal provisions that um, you know um, that create conditions for torture. Right. So, to give you um, you know um, just another example is you know when you have um, extraordinary laws like um, you know the anti-terror laws earlier or Armed Forces Special Powers Act or UAPA. Uh, which take away basic safeguards and custody, then you're actually not, um, you know, uh, you are simultaneously having a rhetoric against torture, but not challenging the conditions that are producing torture. And I think um, this sort of allows for the coexistence of all forms of violence. physical, mental, and excess violence. And that sort of makes it a peculiarly post-colonial because it allows for coexistence of several regimes of violence to continue. And there's a constant sort of legal uh, attempt uh, to keep them separate as if they don't all uh, tell us the different ways through which law accommodates violence.
1: Right. I mean, that's uh, honestly terrifying <laughs> to mm-hmm. to think through. <laughs> well, um, so chapter six, uh, in a sense, presents the coda to the arguments that you have been making thus far. Drawing on the experiences of terror suspects in two cases, that of the Mumbai blasts and the McComas case in Hyderabad, you theorize, and very persuasively, if I may add, that the rule of law is a scaffold that relies on procedures to mask the violence of the state. I would love it if you could flesh this out for our listeners using one of the two cases as a concrete example.
0: Sure. So I think you know in in that particular chapter, I'm very much interested in to uh, to rethink the way in which we theorize the concept of the rule of law, right? So this idea that um, you know there's a, a constraint on uh, sort of liberal states in particular, right, and on coercive authority. Um, And um, and some kind of uh, critique of a dominant conception of rule of law is, of course, sort of thinking about, you know, ideas of um, rule by law or violence of jurisprudence and so on. But part of what I'm interested in is to, again, think about, you know, is there a kind of a scaffold of a rule of law to see whether procedures themselves actually hide violence, right? And here, you know, the idea of the scaffold is, of course, coming from a Foucauldian concept where uh, he talked about the spectacle of the scaffold, right? Um, And and there the idea was to show sovereign power. And here the scaffold of the rule of law is doing something um, exactly the opposite, right? Which is, that the violence that is allowed is actually hidden in the procedures. And uh, what I mean by that is, um, you know, when you look at the Makkah Masjid case, which was, of course, a uh, case in 2007, where there was a blast in the courtyard and about nine people were killed, uh, basically, um, you know, several uh, Muslim youth were picked up and de- they were detained illegally and tortured, right? Now, um, the rule of law required them, and I think um, maintaining the rule of law uh, scaffold required them to be produced in in front of magistrates. Uh, but the way they were done was to basically uh, bring them in the middle of the night and the magistrate basically uh, sending them to um, you know remand without sort of checking on their, um, uh, their conditions, right? So here's a great example of how the safeguards in law are being technically followed, right? Medical exams or even bringing in front of the magistrates. But the role that they are supposed to play are completely, um, you know, um, sort of undermined, right? And this happens in particular with the, um, you know, terrorism related cases, right? Uh, but it can also happen in just routine Um, you know, uh, cases, because as we know, custodial torture and uh, deaths in India also happen in many routine cases. And a similar uh, hiding um, um, of uh, the violence within the procedures are uh, sort of seen in that context. Um, But there is sort of uh, another reason why um, you know, I think it's really important for us to look at the the scaffold of the rule of law is to see that, you know, revealing these practices actually also show the way in which resistance and uh, cracks and shifts can be articulated. And this is something that I try to do in uh, throughout the book is to think about, you know, um, what is it that revealing the um, you know, inner uh, workings of the policing or uh, this kind of a scaffold does for those who experience the violence directly, right? And um, and I find that basically, uh, particularly in the Makkah Masjid case, because the community got involved, there were challenges made to the ways in which FIRs were identical for everybody. Um, you know, the narco tests were being delegitimized and so on and so forth, allowed for um, sort of the challenging of the scaffold as well. And that is another part of the story. So that Makkah Masjid case, everybody was acquitted. There were talk about, uh, you know, compensation for torture, which is extremely rare. Um, And uh, there was a possibility of recognizing Uh, the way in which, um, you know, the policing apparatus works and can be challenged from within. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, um, thanks for, you know, uh, so beautifully articulating responses to all of my questions about the book. And I personally found it uh, very interesting to read. Um, And uh, I would just like to congratulate you again on writing this really interesting and very relevant book for the kinds of discussions going around Uh, regarding police violence and the law in India. But before we let you go, um, I'm sure we would all love to know, what are you working on currently? And what might we expect to see from you in the near future?
0: As you pointed out, you know, I think what what has been striking for me is, um, you know, how it's resonating uh, with some of the current discussions globally about police and violence, right? So, um, you know, I I do feel that um, the kind of uh, resonance um, globally of the um, the murder of George Floyd in the context of the US and the kind of upsurge we saw um, was also seen in the context of a custodial death case in India, for instance, um, in Tamil Nadu in June, and I think. Uh, that just uh, has has me thinking a lot about you know can we think about um the the impact of uh policing becoming um a moment of reckoning for democracy that we saw in the US can we see a similar move uh, in the context of india as well um you know and um and I do see that um, whenever I'm presenting, I'm asked about these questions about abolition of the police and so on and so forth, uh, which I think is a very, very important uh, moment. And I'm currently trying to think about um, um, you know, the resonance of these ideas um, uh, in the US, um, in the context of India as well. Uh, the um, the other uh, project that I've been um, working on for a while is sort of thinking about state commissions of inquiry. Um, and, um, you know, we look at legal cases and that's one uh, major way through which we think about uh, state violence. But I'm also interested in, um, you know, what is the role that commissions of inquiry play in um, uh, helping us understand uh, you know, state processes of dealing with violence. And, um, you know, I've worked a little bit um, in the context of the Manorama case in Manipur, but I'm really interested in uh, taking this up more theoretically. So these are two preoccupations at the moment as we uh, sort of uh, move forward.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And I'm sure your hands are full with lots of uh, the new book related events. So all the best with that. And yeah, thanks again for taking time out to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And um, take care and stay safe. Thank you so much.